Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 115 of Control the Controllables. Another really exciting guest for you today. And this one has coached a multiple Grand Slam champion. I was travelling with Kim, with Justine, with Oliver Rockers, with Savia Melissa. This was the time, then when I really thought I was the greatest coach on the planet because mm. everywhere we went, we always came back with one trophy. This, this was an unbelievable time. <laughs> it was I, amazing. Was this young, I was this young coach, just started at the Federation, and I started to travel with this under-14 team. It was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> I've come, to, I've, I've come to, to terms with the fact that it wasn't me. You, know, it's, uh, you, you don't make a racehorse out of a donkey. And that was the Belgium coach, Carl Mize. Carl has had a quite fantastic coaching career from the well-known time that he spent coaching Kim Kleisters from an early age and coached her for many, many years. He's now currently coaching Serana Castilla as well as working at the Tenerife Tennis Academy. He's had stints as the head coach at the Kim Kleisters Tennis Academy. He's coached Laura Robson, Indy DeVroom, Kirsten Flipkins, Wickmeyer, Ulrike Elkery, and all of these amazing journeys that he's had with these players have brought together his philosophies. And you'll see that also it's, it's very interesting that those philosophies continue to grow as he moves into different roles, despite all of the amazing things that he has achieved. Carl's a good guy. Many of you from Britain will know him as someone who came over to the UK as part of the Belgium Revolution. He talks a little bit about that as well, how maybe he wasn't so loved by the Brits when he came over there, but he tries to put a couple of things to write in, in terms of in terms of why he made certain decisions. Carl's another great guest for us to have on the show. And I know from all of the kind comments that continue to come in to us on all of the social media platforms that you guys are loving these podcasts as well. So thank you for that. We really do love hearing from all of you. And any suggestions as ever, please do send them in to us. But I'm now going to pass you over to Carl. So, Carl Mize, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Uh, nice, uh, nice having me on your show, Dan. I'm, uh, I'm always full of joy when I hear you talk with so much passion. So, I'm, I'm happy that it's my turn finally. It took a <laughs> while, but uh, here I am. And Carl, it, it's, a, it's a massive honor as well to know that someone like yourself is listening to the podcasts. And the second thing I would say, it's also nice for us to be able to compare our tans. You know, I'm here in the south of Spain. You've made the move to Tenerife. So how's that going? Yes, that's going That's going really well. We, we cannot ignore, of course, the, the whole pandemic situation. And like, like many things, 
I think a lot of businesses uh, and people have made decisions that probably have been inspired through the pandemic. And I would probably say without the pandemic, I might not have made this move quite yet, but I always loved the island of Tenerife. I've been here many times on holiday. And uh, whilst everything was in a bit of a turmoil all around the world, uh, this was a good opportunity to, to start helping Chris and Max here in Tenerife and, and start to build up an, uh, uh, an academy here. And as I call it, you know, I've, I've been plenty of times to Dubai and to other sunny places where there's a training environment. I don't see why this cannot happen in, in, in Tenerife. So it's a nice uh, challenge, even though I'm not full-time involved here. I also still travel and yeah. I do quite a few webinars. But uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a, a nice move and I think my tan is better than yours. <laughs> it must be the lighting, Carl. But uh, as, <laughs> as I said beforehand, I, I like to push a little bit with the guests. So, so please feel free to push me back on, on any questions at any time. And I'm going to go for an early push. Okay, so go for it. Let me give this analogy. Ronaldinho, David Beckham, footballers that have played to a very, very high level, spent their time at some of the, <clears throat> the biggest clubs in the world. And then maybe their last couple of years, they move to play in Miami or they move somewhere into something that might be deemed as a little bit easier for the lifestyle. Carl Mize, the tennis coach, and I've given you a big compliment there to put you, it must be your luck that I've put you with David David Beckham. But <laughs> very much when that announcement came and, and what Chris and the guys are doing at Tenerife is fantastic. But when that announcement came, I definitely had open eyes, open mouth, shock that, that you were moving to Tenerife. So are you another David Beckham or Ronaldinho or is the passion still burning for a new project? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer this uh, twofold. I think, yes, the passion is still there. What I do, uh, what I do like and what the challenge is, is here, I, I love change. I love to transform, you know. Uh, I look back at myself and I don't know Beckham's history uh, completely, but I do like uh, the change of a new environment. You know, I've, I've lived in England. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Norway. And I've always had these projects that, you know, between six, seven, eight years that, I mean, if I give myself a little bit of compliment, that always turned out to be better than it was when I left and when I began. And I'm sure that will be the case here. And that's definitely the, the, the passion, the opportunity that I see. Having said that, I also had a few opportunities without naming federations or people's names, I had a few bigger opportunities that also would have been challenging, but that would also have taken over my life yep. uh, once again. And this has been also a bit of a move, but it's been a move to a certain degree uh, with a bit more comfort. The weather is nice. Uh, the pace is a little bit more manana manana. So in that respect, I'm 51. Could I have chosen a bigger challenge? Yes, absolutely. But am I also happy after, you know, I haven't had a holiday in the last six years, except for coming here to, to see my in-laws in, in, in Tenerife, uh, who are spending a lot of time here. Besides that, I never had a holiday. And uh, so I definitely didn't take the easy, uh, the easy route. But I have to say, um, 
it's it's comfortable living here. I cannot deny that. You know, that's uh, the, so it's a twofold. It's a yes and a no. But yeah. that was an easy push, uh, Dan. I can take more. <laughs> so I've started easy. It's going to get worse. Don't worry. But no, I think I think you answered that really well. I think, and that's a, it's a great answer. But I, I want to pick you up on one thing that you said, Carl. And if I remember correctly, you talked about taking over your life, which which I think a lot of tennis jobs do, you know. And for the listeners. Can you give some of the realities when you're coaching a top player, when you're working as head of a federation in, in a certain place, how much do, do those things really take over your life? And how much do you have to have then the family support behind you that isn't, that isn't going to see you as much as they want to see you? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I might just give an, another answer in, 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 you know, in a few parts because I've of course been different. Uh, I've had different types of roles in performance tennis. When you work uh, for a federation, when you work for a governing body, there's a whole lot of politics that come behind, and you have to fit in the structure. Uh, and you cannot be too controversial. And you, on the other hand, you cannot please everybody. Uh, so that basically means that you know you need to be, or it's very difficult not to be full-time available either for your team of coaches for the players for parents of the players because there will always be somebody um, that is in need of advice or that is struggling or that needs helping out with with very practical things and in that respect tennis is of course not a nine-to-five job and if you then compare it to the life of Beckham well Besides packing his shoes and then stepping on a bus, you know, everything was done for that guy, you know, with all the talent and the fantastic charismatic footballer that he was. Uh, the tennis players, the tennis world, as you know, is an individual world and people have the wrong perception of, of tennis. People only see Maria Sharapova with a million dollar check eh, on center court in Wimbledon, but they forget the story behind it or what the process was to get there. And tennis for me is, from a mental point of view, from a monetary point of view, um, it's a very, very difficult life. And therefore, when you're in a responsible role uh, for a governing body, that doesn't stop. You always need to be there uh, for either your team of people or your players or the parents. So that's one side. I mean, it it does take over uh, your life a little bit quite similar to when you run uh, uh, an international tennis academy where from A to Z you're responsible for you know the the people behind the bar as well as uh, uh, ordering the tennis balls as well as the quality of the courts as well as putting people into the main draw of grand slams I mean it's a very difficult combination it never never stopped I have to say that the third role that I've done quite a bit if you travel with one player with a professional player that life is more easy in that respect you are not busy you are not busy 12 hours a day the pressure is there 12 hours the pressure is probably there 24 hours a day okay because little details you know uh little details can decide the outcome whether you take a plane tomorrow or or whether you stay for a few more days so that's a different type of pressure but I was more talking when I said taking over your life in terms of the time-consuming 
uh, the energy that it that it takes from you by not having time for yourself. And I'll give you one simple example. Uh, here in Tenerife, I swim every day. Unfortunately, you know, I ran marathons. My body doesn't allow that anymore, but I swim every day. I mean, it is something that I did not take the time to go swimming, cycling or running in the last 15 years. So in that respect, my role here with Chris as the academy director, and I'm looking after certain performance aspects of the players, as well as still traveling with Sorana Kirstea or doing some webinars, my time is much more managed. And I don't feel guilty putting my phone away. And in that respect, yeah, I, I, I think I've made the right choice now. I have an impact on, on various segments of the tennis business, uh, but my own life, uh, I do have a bit more quality of life as, as, as a I tell, I tell you what, Carl, I can see why you do a lot of webinars and things. You, you talk incredibly well. And, and you know, the other thing that stands out is how good you are at kind of compartmentalizing things. And that that is something I've never had the pleasure to work with you as a coach. But that is is something that I've heard of you as a coach, that you are very organized. You know, you do have mm-hmm. your ways. Is that something that comes from you growing up? Is that is that something that you picked up from your parents? Is that, if we go back to, I suppose, the beginning of your tennis, is that something that developed quite early in your personality and within your tennis way of thinking, that, that ability to be quite organized and ordered in how you think? Well, I, I, I don't know where it started, but it's something that has probably been, been part of my... Uh, my my youth and and if i go really early stages you know when i was in, in primary school i was pretty good at all sports you know i was in the i was in the football team the volleyball team the you know tennis team we didn't do in school i did that private but i was a reasonable swimmer there you know sports came very natural to me now when i went to play football i didn't like the physicality of it and uh uh, I, I was drawn into football because my, my grandfather played a few times for the national team, but he was also uh, a coach, uh, a soccer coach. And I remember this is, of course, way, I mean, I'm now talking uh, the year that you were born, you know, in 19, I think you're 1980, right? Very good. Good memory. Yes. yes. And uh, so I, I think it must have been around that time where I saw my grandfather on his table. He had a big carton board and he was like, uh, making the lesson plans and making a table for the football teams and stuff to post it. And I, I guess, you know, with both of my parents being self-employed, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And seeing my grandfather doing that, I think has has inspired me that, you know, he was a very good football player. I've never been as good as that as a tennis player. But it inspired me, the the, the joy that he had, in actually creating something, creating an environment where other people would feel that they could grow, that they could get better. Um, I think that must have, I think maybe in, in inspired me uh, to a certain extent. And that, that was maybe one moment very early in my life that made me more of a coach than a tennis player myself. Yep. And a second one was, uh, this is quite a, a funny one, I've, mentioned in a few webinars already so you might have heard the story but at, at, I did university I'm a like master in exercise physiology and there's, there's there's certain things that I've remembered others I've completely forgotten but there's one moment from one 
teacher, one, one professor, we had to do all sorts of things. Basically, I can go and teach in a school, but we had six lessons or something like that of jazz dance. Okay. And I skipped quite a few lessons because I was already coaching in the federation with, you know, with the guys like Xavier Malice and, you know, you, you, you know, that generation very well. And uh, anyway, I missed a whole lot of lessons. And, and all of a sudden I had to sort of do this, this dance lesson, this jazz dance for, it was micro teaching with, with the group of, of, uh, of, of students who were very envious for me because I was already working at the Federation and I was never there and blah, blah, blah. So, it, you know, I, I was not the most popular guy amongst my, my peers, I have to say. But, you know, I, I did, I prepared this jazz dance with, uh, with a female friend of mine and sort of some dance moves. And luckily I, I have a bit of rhythm. But anyway, this guy, this, this, this dance professor gave me the maximum points for a song from In Excess, I just, of course, I had some experience in teaching already because I went to the Federation. I went to Antwerp eh, to work with, with Tom Vaas, Xavier Malis, Christoph Liegen and those guys. And uh, so I had some experience in, in working with to basically grabbed that group of students in that dance room and I sort of moved them around. And, and this guy said, well, you're already a teacher. You're already a coach. And this was something that, that struck me because this is something that had come very natural to me. I'd never sort of been taught how to teach, how to coach, but I managed to, even out of my comfort zone, I managed to sort of pull off something that looked like a dance lesson, even though I've never danced before. And uh, maybe, you know, and I spoke to that person uh, uh, afterwards and he says, listen, whatever you do wrong, I know you're not in the lessons and stuff like that but I'm not going to hold you back. You know, I'm going to, you know, if there's ever uh, a problem for you in, in your five years at university, I'm not the one who's going to hold you back because you're, you're destined to sort of be a coach. And that was a, that was a really nice compliment. Although I've barely seen this guy, he was quite a famous choreographer. And that's when I realized that I'm more a coach than a performer. Um, and I like to create, I like to make things possible for other people. Having said that, I like to, I, I just said, this dance, teaching dance was, uh, was uh, uncomfortable for me in a way because I've never done it before. And I've got, I like your, you know, the title of your podcast, Control the Controllables. I've also got another one, which is uh, that, that I sort of use in my coaching philosophy because you asked, how have you determined your, your coaching philosophy? And I like to make people comfortable in being uncomfortable because when we are uncomfortable our natural desire will be to make it comfortable even you and I sitting in this room you know the people in, in Scandinavia when it's cold they put they will put the heating up okay for us it's warm uh, in the south of Spain or in Tenerife so we'll put the air conditioning on just to make them a little bit stop different. winding the listeners up Carl hey <laughs> okay don't keep it going <laughs> We always strive to get to a more comfortable situation. And that, I think, is an, 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 an internal motivation that we need to find. And sometimes I make things uncomfortable for the people around me, uh, yeah. for the players, because I know they'll strive to do that. And then maybe my last thing, because you mentioned something about the systematic uh, approach, that is something that I think I have learned through my studies and uh, uh, I, one of my mottos is to put the theory into practice. 
And, and with that, I've sort of developed this vision that, you know, there needs to be a system in place. You know, I call it the SAS. You know, there needs to be a system. When you're in point A, you need to know where point B is and how to get there. That is a systematic approach that, that and I use that during a tennis session, during a periodization, or even in meetings with other coaches, or even in, in when I do corporate talks for things. I always like to have this, this systematic approach. The A stands for aligned. You know, the left hand needs to know what the right hand is doing. Very difficult in an individual sport as tennis when you work with a team of coaches where they've seen this on Google, they've seen that there. They, you know, yep. it's so eclectic and they all have their own vision, but it's important to come up with an aligned method. And then the, the S from SAS, the third uh, letter would be for, it needs to be specific enough. I do like to get into, into details, uh, whether this is about a lesson plan or taking minutes of a meeting, um, because I do feel sometimes there is too much talking and, and not enough walking the talk. It's a, it's a very common problem. I've been guilty of it many, many times, but I, I, I do find it's important to be specific enough. Very good. And to, and to pick you up on the being comfortable, being uncomfortable, which I'm, I'm a big believer of as well. And I guess if we, if we look at this two ways of doing that, I suppose there's the get putting people in a, in a more uncomfortable position more often, you know, applying pressure, applying different, whether it's forfeits, rewards, putting them in, in, in certain situations on the practice court, which I would be a, a big fan of. But what then strategies would you use with a player to help them to become more comfortable and almost speed that process up of being comfortable? I don't know if that question makes sense. Yes, yes. No, I, 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 think, I think I get it. And my answer would be the, the following. If, if my method, if we, if we go to the traditional why, how, what uh, sequence, then I think what I've just mentioned, this, you know, being comfortable and being uncomfortable is a method. It's the how. What then needs to happen is your specific goal setting. It could be related to your surf percentage. It could be some technique. It could be anything that comes out of a functional analysis. That's really the what. Huh? The how, how to get there, you know, that is this method that I just described of being uncomfortable. Um, and then you find, you find through analysis what needs to happen. Now, you can do that by continuously trying to do that, like you, you said in your first method. But I think what is important and what has been increasingly uh, or what has changed over the last 10, 20 years is a sense of empathy that you need to have as a coach gain the trust before you actually make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay. You need to really be able to stand in the shoes of the player and the player needs to develop uh, enough trust in you before you can actually make them feel comfortable, yeah. uh, make them feel uncomfortable in a certain situation. So, and that is the why, you know, we need to understand why these kids play tennis. Yeah. Is it because they like to play points? Is it uh, because they like to please their parents? Uh, there could be a multitude of reasons. And depending on that, I think you need to adapt as a coach, as a leader. Uh, I, I, I'm a true believer that there is no more 
when I, when I studied, when I was at university, you had these different kinds of leadership styles. And, and, and I'm a big, uh, not a big fan, but the, the person that I like a lot with his vision on leadership is, is Dan Goldman. And he has these six leadership styles that, that you know, when he, when he uh, interviewed quite a lot of successful business people, he actually saw that depending on the situation, they applied a different leadership style, you know. Uh, they were visionary when they when they needed to get motivation out of their uh, employees. They had to have a vision, okay. When they wanted to really have a buy-in, they had to do it in a democratic way, yeah. okay. And at one point, when the things were probably a little bit loose, they had to set the pace and be more commanding. But it was all these different types of leadership styles that I think you need to have in you to understand why the person that you're working with is doing something. And once you understand that, it becomes a lot easier. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you the example of Sorana Kirstea when she came for the first time to Belgium to Academy. She's been working with, with several coaches. And, you know, after three years, she still keeps coming back to me. It's not to my, my credit, but I do think there's a mutual understanding and probably we wouldn't be able to work together full time, not for her, not for me, that's an option, but there's a mutual understanding. And that puts me in a position where I can actually put her in her place more than anybody else who then probably would have been uh, get, getting the door in their face when they would do that. So getting an understanding, knowing the why is important yeah. before you actually can put your your vision or your philosophy through to 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 them very good and i think as well if you've if you've got that understanding of the why you can also help to put tennis in in a context in their world which i always feel brings a level of comfort to a player as well so if we're on this kind of comfortable bit or this feeling secure and if, I, if you don't mind me sharing a quick story, I remember when I was in college in America and I was watching the US Open and Paul Goldstein, I don't know if you remember the name, yes, yes. but Paul Goldstein had come out of college, a very successful US college career. And he'd come out and he was ranked probably about 120 in the world. And there he was sat in the CBS studios in the fourth round of the US Open. And they said, Paul, what's what's happened? You've come from pretty much nowhere. And he said, I've just got now a sense of belonging. I, mm -hmm. I feel as if I now belong, ultimately feel comfortable and feel secure in my environment. I, I, I now feel a part of this tour. When I walk in the locker room, I know people, people know me. I know who to who to practice with. I don't, I'm not looking over my shoulder, having this feeling of almost imposter syndrome, you know, as, yeah. as we're going our way. And, and I just, I just think for, for coaches listening, for players listening, for parents listening, that can take time, but it can also, you can also be smart with how you have this understanding of, of almost security of where you belong within the sport and where and where sport where where the sport of tennis fits into your life in your context, which goes back to the the real understanding of the why. Yes, absolutely. You're you're spot on. Yes. And yes. and and Carl, one of the things 
I've always wanted to ask you, not not necessarily. Oh, I don't lie awake at night thinking I want to ask Carl Mize this, <laughs> but 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 I I guess you are you've got ten years on me. So I guess when I when I first came across you, you were already a coach, you know. So mm-hmm. in terms of your playing bit, what level did you play to? How far did you go? And then how quickly was it? You've already mentioned you were a natural coach. So did the coaching then start quite early? Yes, well, I when, when I finished my secondary school, when I was 18, I played uh, five uh, futures. Uh, I managed to win one match, okay? But uh, I was smart enough uh, at that point because I, I had to make a decision what I was going to do. And I think I made a very smart move uh, telling my parents, listen, don't put the money into my tennis career. I'll go to university. Um, so I've never, you know, I've always was a, a national level. I played international junior tournaments, yep. etc. Uh, but you know, once I got to a professional level, I soon realized that this was going to be a, a journey that that was not for me. And uh, through the examples that I've just given earlier uh, in our chat, and also I, I remember vividly, you know, I always practiced with uh, with Philip De Wolf and Tom van Hout, you know, and they've both made it to top hundred uh, ATP. And uh, they were a few years younger than me, but uh, you know, I always managed to practice with them until I was 17, 18. So I guess on 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 a practice match, I was actually a much better player than than I've ever been in in, in matches. So uh, I don't have the experience as a tennis player, nope. but quite early on, I remember that I was asking when when they asked me, you know, play this forehand more open stance. I was asking my coach. I mean, what are the benefits, you know, and explain to me, yep. you know, what is the difference between this open stance and, and closed stance. So I guess in the back of my mind, from my grandfather, through my tennis coaches, through when I got to university, I realized that I, I had it more in me to, to teach than to, than to actually perform myself as an athlete. So, and then uh, I went to university. I did actually play. This is, this is quite, a, I, I don't know how that was possible, uh, but uh, we, I did play the NCAA in Milwaukee the year that, that, that Byron Black played against Daniel Nestor. Okay. And I don't know, we, we were invited from the University of Leuven and there was some ambassador or whatever. And it was sort of an invitational thing. So I, I did play the NCAA in Milwaukee in 89, I think, at some point. No, actually, I, I didn't play. I, I, it was minus 20. Uh, I remember now, uh, we went there with a whole team and uh, I, I felt it was minus 20. It was, we stayed in host families and it was this packed ice. And uh, I still have, a, I have stitches in my thumb from falling on a, on a packed ice. And uh, for the, yeah, I think I trained for three days and the rest of the seven days I was driving around in a Bentley with my host family around Lake Michigan. So that was a... Living uh, the good yeah. life. Yes, yes. So, but uh, yeah, no, uh, and, until 1980, I know I played some team matches and stuff like that, but after that, I never played professional tennis. You know, there's a few good examples and, and take, take the, the, the Jose Mourinho's from, from this world, you know. Uh, it, it is nice to see that, uh, that there is a space uh, in the, the training environments to combine expertise level, you know. Uh, you know, you, I see a Boris Becker sitting with Djokovic for a few, you know, I cannot imagine that Becker 
would help Djokovic how to hit technically a forehand. I mean, I would yep. be surprised. Maybe I'm, I'm I'm saying this completely wrong. I don't know Becky at all. Yeah, yeah. But I think I'm in that respect. I'm probably yeah more qualified than certain other people who have played on center court. You know, I'm I'm quite comfortable going into discussion with Bruce Elliott on biomechanics on on, on tennis. So I I think uh, I've made the best of my uh, tennis ability. Absolutely, I think it's it, it's so interesting, Carl. You, I'm just I guess reflecting myself a little bit. I've always felt a more natural coach than a player, definitely. Mm-hmm. And 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 even if I go back, I think going back to probably when you remember me as a player in under 14s. I was always much more comfortable on a doubles court than a singles court. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think I, I don't think I ever found a way of coaching myself, <laughs> but yeah. I, but I always felt more comfortable. And I think a big part of it was, yes, maybe some of the, you know, skill development stuff and my skills matched up to doubles, but I always felt very calm on a doubles court because I, I having someone next to me and feeling I was playing almost that leadership role. Of, yeah. of, of, of helping the person next to me, you know, being able to kind of call plays, being able to emotionally coach. And I, and I, and I really, really do remember that from a very, very early age, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, 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 I, and I think some of those traits, you know, massively do then, you know, move forward. And, and I just wonder if there is something in that, that, you know, maybe some of the doubles players, are maybe more suited to become coaches than some of the singles players because some of the singles guys are a little bit just on their own in the way they think. Whereas I think the doubles guys tend to have that coaching skill already. Maybe do a bit of research on that. Yeah, no, I think it's actually a very, I, it hasn't crossed my mind, uh, but I think it's a very good observation. It's a very good observation. It would be good to get to get a little bit deeper uh, in, in, into that subject. But as, as a team player, you need to, be more aware of what goes on in the other person's head. You know, if going going back to my personal situation, if there's one thing that I regret, I've had a fantastic life in tennis. You know, I've you know, I've I've played on every center court and uh, not not in Wimbledon, huh, but I've played on every center court for practice with the with one of my players. It's it's you know, as a coach, I can't you know, I've been in the final of the Fed Cup. It's been a fantastic career, but. Personally, as a, as a player, what I would have loved to have done, and I think I would have gotten probably a better player and I would have enjoyed the double aspect, I would have loved to have gone to college. But yeah. when, you know, at, 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 you know, I'm talking now, 1988, going to college from, from Belgium, you know, one of my friends went to college, but it was still a little bit out there. It was like, whoa, I mean, going to, going to the States, whereas now, your academy here in Tenerife, so many other, you look at Nadal and Muir Tuglu, you know, they, they branch their academy by preparing you to go to college. And that is something that I regret in my, in my sort of tennis life, having, having not experienced the college life. But I do think that playing doubles would have helped you. And, and if I remember right, you know, you know this, with, with, with Sherwood or with Dixon and, and with those guys, if I, re, if I remember you as a thing, I, you know, I can see there the person that you have that you have become and the way you're doing these podcasts is also in a way it's it's an altruistic tool where you're sharing information this is not for you i don't think you're i don't think you're listening to every podcast of yourself every evening when you go to sleep but it is about sharing information and wanting to do that puts you in a 
in a different motivation. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the pyramid of Maslow. I've, I've heard of it. Yes, I have. Yeah. Yes, hey, the Maslow pyramid is, is the motivation why we do certain things. And in, in that respect, I can just see that you're already in, in, in progressed more quickly than egoistic tennis player that's only in there for themselves as into sharing and actually feeling that as a team, you will achieve more and you're sharing information to make others better. And that makes yourself actually more motivated to keep doing what you're doing. So I, I think you're quite early got into that stage as well. You've just, you're in my head. You've, you've, uh, I feel like you're, you're playing your professor, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, Carl talking of team. And, and I think, you've touched on your career and you've absolutely had a fantastic, amazing career so far. And I'm sure there's lots more, lots more to go, but I guess the, the real highlight in terms of, in terms of depth of insight, I think has to be your journey with Kim, Kim Kleisters for, for the listeners, because I think some coaches will work for a year or two with a player and, and and have an impact and, you know, maybe come away with a grand slam or two, you know, but I think that's very different than working with a player in development years and, and, and over a, a long period, which you did with Kim. I believe you, you worked with her for 10, 11 years. Yeah. I, I don't know how much in total it's been in different phases, but yeah, uh, yeah we, we kept coming back uh, uh, to each other. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Which must've meant something good was happening. So tell us about that journey. Well, I, I think the first time I met Kim was uh, when uh, uh, when I was starting to coach for the regional, uh, the county or the province in, in Belgium, where she um, uh, where she was invited to, obviously as a, as a talented player. And um, soon after that, she also moved to the club where I was uh, where I had played uh, myself. So very gradually. You know, I saw her once a week, twice a week, three, four times a week. So it, it became a little bit more intense. And, and how old was I, she then, Carl? How old was Kim then? This was at the age of 11. Right, okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this was at the age of 11. I, I met her the, the first time. And um, a few years later, I actually made a transfer uh, to start working uh, for the uh, Flemish Tennis Federation. And for those of you who don't know the Belgian situation. It's a very small country, but we still managed to have two completely uh, different federations. There's actually a funny story that I need to share uh, with you. Kim, at one point uh, in her very young career, had never lost to a girl of her own age in Flanders. She had never lost to a girl a year older, and she'd never lost to a girl two years older. Wow. Okay, that's how dominant she was. So she was always two years ahead. So the two federations uh, in Belgium, never, Justine and Kim, never practiced together. Not when they were young, not when they were old. And at one moment, there's this, you know, cooperation or approach uh, from both federations, and they play a friendly match. And Kim goes and plays in, in Mons, in the center of the, the, the French federation, and she comes back and her dad asks her, how did you do? I said, well, I, I lost my match and uh, against a girl one year older than me. And the dad couldn't believe that, you know, in a, in a country so small, it was impossible that, you know, somebody who's only one year older would beat, you know, Kim, who, had, who in the last two, three years had never lost a match. And that was Justine Hannon. That was the first time 
you've heard of Justine Hennen. And it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was incredible. So, but as that journey went on and, you know, under, under 14, I've traveled around the world. And this is when you were playing all these, these tournaments as well and the Summer Cup and the Winter Cup. And I was traveling with Kim, with Justine, with Oliver Rochus, with Savia Malice. This was the time then when I really thought I was the greatest coach on the planet because mm. everywhere we went, you know, the you know Xavier and Olivier have, have lost a few matches against you guys, uh, but overall we always came back with one trophy. Whether it was Justine, Kim, Xavier, Oliver, it was you know this this was an unbelievable time. It was I, was this young, I was this young coach just started at the federation, and I started to travel with this under fourteen team. It was a joke. It was a joke. I've come to I've I've come to to terms with the fact that it wasn't me. You know, it's uh, you you don't make a racehorse out of a donkey. And uh, I've seen a lot more donkeys in my latter coaching career than in the But beginning. can you make a donkey out of a racehorse? Right, this, this might this might be my limited English. I, I don't so, understand. This. So so what you've explained there, Carl, is is that if you don't have the the raw ability talent to work with, you can't turn them into a champion. However, yeah if you have the raw ability and and talent and everything like a racehorse would have, I do still believe as a coach or as a player, you then have a, the ability to not be successful with that. So I guess I've flipped, I've flipped the, 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 the thing that you've done with the donkey and the racehorse you've yeah. in, in, in Kim, in Justine, in, in okay. Xavier, in Olivier, Rockus, Melise, Henning, and Kleisters. For those listening, you had racehorse quality. Yes, but mm. there's there is the ability if you don't do a good job that they do turn into donkeys at some <laughs> point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. There, there's a nice there's a nice quote from Johan Cruyff, the, the the football player, the legendary football player, and also coach of Barcelona, uh, who I think once said, "It is much more difficult." to make Barcelona play 1% better than to make them 10% worse. So at one point, I think, and this is, you know, if I, if I look at my coaching career, you know, I think the, the, I, I compare it with a carpenter. A carpenter has got a toolbox with a, a drill and a screwdriver and all sorts of tools. And I think I've been lucky enough to learn from a lot of the good players without having to necessarily use too many tools to then be able afterwards when i had more donkeys you know to you to know which tool works with which player but when you work with racehorses there's actually so much natural ability that you have you know you might have a big toolbox but you have to keep these tools in the toolbox yeah. And it's only when you really need them that you have to that you have to get them out. But uh, yes, no, I, I I get I get your I get your point. You you can do a lot of things uh, uh, wrong at some point. And I I think as as a coach, I would talk not in these type of conversations that we have, but with players, I talk a lot less now than thirty years ago. And and if we go to that time, Carl because it was, it was, it was a golden era. And, and I think we've been guilty of this globally in tennis when, 
when a golden era comes into a country as small as Belgium, you mm. know, it's very easy to kind of jump on the back of that and say they're obviously doing something amazingly special. But then at the same time, I think we can also get cynical and say, oh, well, they've done nothing. They were just lucky that talents come through. And whereas I think some credit absolutely has to be given still, you know, to, to allow talents like that to come through the system to to then nurture those talents to go on to win grand slams and and have the successful careers that they'd had so in in your opinion why was that such a special era was this something that the federation was doing was there something that was the culture was doing or was it purely just luck that such talents came through no if we're talking about kim and justine being number one in the world and I'm now talking number one in the world, yeah. I think there's a big portion of luck. That that happened in the same... It's it's like Venus and Serena. There's a big portion of luck. We, we shouldn't deny that. I think the big, the biggest credit for Belgian tennis is that at any given point for a period of 20 or 25 years, we had, you know, six, seven, eight players in the top 100, okay? And that's the credit of the system. And, you know, Kim and Justine, you know, if they were born in England, they would have been top 10 players as well. Maybe also number one in the world. I don't know. But the fact that for a small federation, you were able for such a long period, not just because we, we, I'm, go, I'm now going back to Anne de Vries and Sandra Wasserman, uh, Sabine Appelmans, Laurence Courtois, all those players. And it yeah. ended with, with Kim and Justine being at the very top number one in the world both of them. Uh, but for a period of 20, 25 years, we've had a minimum of five players in, in, in top 100 at any given time. And that's credit to the system. And that systematic approach that I talked earlier about, you know, being systematic, being aligned, being specific, that is definitely something that I learned from, you know, my bosses at the time in, uh, in Belgium. And, and I'm sure that was one of the reasons why Roger Draper also got myself and Stephen Martins uh, into the LTA. And, and I think looking, looking back in hindsight, that was, you know, not such a bad time we had there at the LTA as well with, with still now people like, uh, like Evo and Conta and, and Heather. You know, there, there's a lot of good tennis players that came out of that, uh, that era as well. So being able to, because I guess that's where it takes me next, is there was definitely at that time I was a young coach or or a player coming to the end of my playing. And it did feel a little bit like in, in Great Britain, and I'm sure coaches around the country were like, okay, we're now just going to try and copy Belgium. You know, we're, we're bringing in these guys from Belgium. You know, we can't copy it. We're a different culture. We think different. We, you know, all of the different challenges that will come. Do you believe that the system that the Belgian Federation and that you were involved in, that you were able to duplicate that in Great Britain? If so, great. If not, why? What were the challenges to stop that? Well, the, the second question I don't have to answer because it was never a goal to duplicate the Belgian oh, system. Okay. You know, yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a goal to see, you know, as, as in any business, when you start something, you have to make your SWOT analysis and you have to see, you know, what are the good points? What are the things you want to keep or, and what are the, the things that need improving? Just like you, when you start with a player, you also don't start from, from scratch. And I think Stephen and I are very similar and we're still very good friends. Um, 
and we're, we're very analytical. And I think what we did is we, we did manage to make quite a good analysis of the points that needs that needed addressing uh, in the LTA. And I think we, we've done so. I wasn't very popular, you know, for women's tennis by by cutting the number of $10,000 tournaments that we had in, in, you know, in half. I mean, there were, I think, 22 $10,000 tournaments. We were number one. You know, I like to act on facts. Uh, we, we talked about this earlier, about this, this pragmatic approach. Well, I, I made a simple ranking analysis for every, you know, age, sorry, every ranking group, you know, the top 100, then uh, 400 to 500, 700 to 800, and then the total number of players. Great Britain was the number one country. I'm now talking female tennis because that was my goal at the time. But uh, we were the number one country in the number of ranked players on the WTA ranking outside 800. Now, that's not why they brought me in for. Okay. And then I saw. Elena Baltasha, Mel Sout, Anne Kiotovon, Katie O'Brien. For years and years and years, they were already at an age where they were approaching the average age of the top 100 players. So they were, they were at their full potential, being around 150, 200. So, you know, I needed to do something that would help those players because ultimately those were my KPIs, you know, to, to, get, to get those. It was not the, to get the most numbers of people ranked. So... I halved the number of $10,000 tournaments, which allowed us to do fifty dollars and $70,000 tournaments, okay. which then closed the gap with the Birmingham and the Eastbournes. And within a year and a half, you know, and Nigel Sears and myself were, were the two last candidates to, to take that role. And I ended up being head of women's tennis. And they asked me, well, listen, what is, what is going to be your first sort of action? And I said, listen, I'm going to drive to Brighton and I'm going to, tried to get Nigel, who was, of course, disappointed and upset that he didn't get that role. I said, I'm going to try to have him aboard because British tennis will be better with the vision that I have, with the anal analytical brain that I have, to then have it implemented by somebody like Nigel. So I remember driving him. We met at Gatport, actually, before he, he took off. And, you know, within 30 minutes, we agreed to sort of start doing this, this together. And I think it's been, I think it's been a, a pretty good era, but I wasn't very popular with, you know, eliminating these $10,000 tournaments. But a year and a half later, we had four players in, inside the top 100, which was a, a very good result that had not been achieved since, God knows, 1992. So yeah. you, within every organization, and, and especially now that there's more expertise I'm going to nutritionists, psychologists, managers, uh, whatever it may be, around the player or within an organization, you have to make sure you have the right people in the right place. And, and that is key to be successful in this, uh, in, in this modern thing. I mean, 20 years ago, I was driving around to my little open Corsa with Kim and I was telling her what to eat, what time to go to bed. I even checked you know, to, to, you know, how she, you know, I told her to, to make up the bed. And before the, the cleaning ladies came, I, I, I gave points for how neat the room was. You know, these days you have so much expertise of fitness people and, 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 and other parts of this interdisciplinary approach that the performance management is, is crucial. But within this performance management, you have performance management, you have to have the right people in the right place. And you don't need to be able to do everything, uh, uh, from A to Z anymore.
Very good. And in terms of, I'm going to take you back to the tournaments because I think it's it's quite a a relevant topic, I think, right now. You know, I think people are, there's always people looking to what other federations are doing. And I think Italy's somewhere that people are looking right now and seeing, certainly on the men's side, look how many tournaments they are. Now there's X amount, you know, look at Spain, how many tournaments they've had over the year. And, and, and then we had Tom Gullickson on the podcast and he talked about one of the most important things he believed the USDA, which he believes they do well, is having the correct tournament structure all the way through, you know, from from juniors all the way through to the senior game. And then, as you saying, I was about to jump if you hadn't added the 50Ks and the 70Ks. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think that's smart, you know, using the money to be able to bridge the gap and give yeah. the, the relevant players the, the right opportunities. What's your take? If you were in charge of a federation, of a, of a large federation, it doesn't matter if it's the UK, US, Australia, wherever, how would you look to have the tournament structure within that that national country? Yeah, I think you, I think you need to start with the number of tournaments or the number of matches, I should say, that any player at any age should be able to play. Yes. If you want to have a competitive structure, you know, you need to be realistic and, and say, okay, we cannot do everything in our own country. Certain countries have taken the approach and, you know, in Italy, they started to copy the sort of the Spanish model. And this is about 20 years ago. And I'm convinced that they reap the rewards of it, you know, to have so many playing opportunities and what it actually has, has helped. And I'm, I'm going to come back to, to, to answering the, the question specifically, but I would like to get on that Italy and Spain example a little bit. Having lived here now for nine months and having been in contact with with Spanish players, you know, the Spanish Federation doesn't offer a lot of help for the clubs. I mean, uh, if you compare to the budgets of the LTA or or other Western European uh, federations, there's a lot less involvement from the federation from the top down on telling clubs how to do their things. What they do do well is organize these events. They make it possible to play tennis. And I think what has happened in too many countries where from the top down, there's too much involvement for the right reasons. Don't get me wrong, because there's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot more research. So you're convinced, you know, talent ID programs is, is, is one of these classic things. I mean... And, and, you know, I was part of it at the LTA when we were measuring every single detail of, of any player at, at a given age. Now, as long as you cannot prove that a kid that you measure or test or select, you know, or label at the age of age 9, 10, that those kids are also the best kids, you know, 15 years later, then any talent development program needs to question itself, okay? And so far, there hasn't been a system like that. But I understand, I've been part of this analytical program where you say, oh, we can measure this, we can do this, we can put anything. But, you know, it is only through a generation or maybe two generations that you realize, okay, certain things that we thought were good or that that we applied 20 years ago, certain of these things work, others don't. And this is the next step for if I were to be in, in, in a federation or in a responsible role is to say, okay, which mistakes have we made? Not necessarily for the wrong reasons, because I believed in this talent ID program as well. 
but certain things have worked, certain things have not worked, and learn from those lessons and then put a tournament structure in place because ultimately we train to train, but we train to compete afterwards as well, and then put a tournament structure in place, which at this moment I think is, is too restrictive. I mean, you know, when, when, when you went to the Orange Bowl on the 14, you know, there was one agent walking around there, and you might know him, I don't know, Fabio Della Vida. It's an Italian guy. He later on worked for IMG. He was the only guy walking around. He was a little bit like a, a grandfather figure walking around. He knew all the kids. He chatted to everybody and stuff like Very, I'm looking for the right word. You know, he, he was like your uncle that you would, he would walk around there. He's very friendly and you, you would have a chat with him. Now you go to the Orange Bowl, not on the 14th, but on the 12th. And there's like 20 agents, you know, looking to sign people and making the making them dream big things and and ultimately they all become a number because only when you're very good they can really do a good job for you so the tournament structure in my opinion that is that is good for the longevity of tennis careers of your own tennis people is one that is not too restrictive and that is more inclusive i mean the number of times that i have heard parents of children from eight nine ten pulling kids out of an event because, ah, oh, it's not strong enough. Ah, oh, uh, you know, he only wants to play up. Uh, she, sh she should not be playing against that opponent. I mean, it, it, is, it is unbelievable. And this is what I really like here in Spain. And we've got, we've got a nice little kid here. And, you, you know, Stefan Sanchechev, you know, yeah. uh, the, the son of Max. You know, he plays padel until 10, 10 o'clock in the evening, you know, and then the next morning he's got a tennis session. And then there's an adult that is looking around and doesn't have anybody. But, and he just plays with him as well. He just plays. He just plays. And where federations, I think, in my opinion, have gone wrong, and I've been guilty about it as well, is that too much from the top down, the teaching and the coaching aspect was made too important. And they were telling the clubs and the coaches how to do their thing. Now, to finish my story, if you look here in Spain, sometimes it's very frustrating if you need to arrange something with this manana manana and everything takes a little bit longer. There's also one good thing about manana manana. If there's a shit practice today, they don't panic. You know, tomorrow yeah. we do the same thing. If they skip a practice today, that's okay. There's manana. And it allows kids and their coaches to develop at their own pace because there is no number one under 10. There should not be a number one under 12 because it is completely irrelevant if you see who 10 years later has, has got the reins in, in, in professional tennis. So this natural develop, trusting this process is actually one of the reasons I think that in Spain and in Italy, by providing so much competition that it, it, you know, it doesn't matter if they lose today. Tomorrow, they'll play another game. And they just learn not to emphasize too much on the loss because... Yep. I mean, I, I use this in my mental toughness uh, seminars and I've got a few clips of parents watching the match of, of a kid playing tennis. Oh my God. Okay. And it's the environment, but it comes from the top down. It's the federation say, listen, when you're 10, you need to have won so many this, matches. You need to be able to do this. And then these parents, they freak out because the, the kid next door has already got his, his label or has already been selected. And they start to make the wrong choices for the wrong reasons. So, manana, manana. 
I'm with you. I'm with you, Carl. I'm with you. And it's the cream will rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and I do really believe that. And I think that's the same with tennis coaches. And a, a, a very quick example of that, we this week we've actually got, and I think she was in Tenerife as well, Iga Svitek. Mm-hmm. So she's, mm-hmm. pre- she's preparing for Madrid at, at the academy this week. And I've got to know her coach very well. And it's a great story because he was just coaching in a club in Poland. You know, Iga walked in. Yes, he was working with some decent youngsters, walked in age 13, 14, started coaching her. Five years later, she won the French Open. Now, yes. that would not be allowed to happen in certain federations. Mm-hmm. There, there would be right. too many people would get too involved. There'd be too many people trying to get their hands in doing this. That needs to happen. That needs to happen. A second story, just to emphasize that before I move into my last thing with you, Carl, is you know I got asked to, to coach a player a few weeks ago from a federation. Again, I won't name players or federations. This, these conversations went on for four or five weeks and I didn't speak to the player once. <laughs> yes. You know, these, the, the, this way of working doesn't work at all. I think you described it very well. So that moves me into my last point around, you know, I'm hearing murmurs that there's obviously we've had this PTPA that have, that have come out, you know, Novak Djokovic and Pospisil. I'm hearing murmurs that things are starting to potentially be pushed along on that. You know, where we've got Noah Rubin looking to run a different tour. We've got UTR, then we've got WTN. We've got, we've got, it almost feels as if we're coming to a point in tennis right now where there's, almost not not a breaking point i actually think it might be a good thing that, that lots of things open and things aren't monopolized where do you see the the future of tennis um it's 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 definitely interesting times and going back to one of the points we discussed before in 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 moments of crisis and let's be honest the pandemic has put the whole world in a crisis yes. uh, uh, and you know whilst we are getting control of the the health situation a little bit uh, more thanks to the vaccines and, and immunity and so on. The economical reality will hit us next year still, and maybe for many years to come. And tennis as a sport, just like football, I mean, look at football, what happened on Sunday with this Super League competition. I, I think this was not the time or in history Okay, to come up with something like the Super League. Uh, I do believe that at one point in time, uh, an an NBA version or something could exist. But let's not confuse NBA with the Super League, because in the NBA, in the NBA, at least you've got this solidarity principle where at least the big teams, you know, have to wait to, you know, to draft their players and and so on. (laughs) That is not the goal of the Super League. I don't think this was a smart move. But again, I'm, I'm not in the football business. But I don't think that was a smart move, nor do I think it was the right time for Djokovic and his peers to step up and actually go against the ATP. This was a time to, behind closed doors, to have a unified approach. And I'm much more like the, I don't know if you've seen it already, I don't know when the interview was uh, taken with Andrea Gaudenzi on the Tennis Channel I think I saw it on, on Twitter, must, it was last week in Monte Carlo. And I thought there was a very good interview about where 
WTA and ATP have to look for common grounds. They have got one product and they will be a lot stronger selling one product than you know, trying to listen to the needs of the actors. And I've been a WTA board member. I understand the issues that the players have and they're all in their little bubble. Now it's yeah. a pandemic bubble, but even before that, they're all in, in, they're all in that bubble and they don't look any further than their own thing. And you might tell the nice stories about Yes, the future of the players and the, but what they what they lack and they don't need it is I think a sense of realization what governing bodies like the ITF, the Grand Slams, and so on, how much time goes into organizing these events and how much time goes into governing a calendar. And do they make mistakes? Absolutely. But will it be better? to actually work with each other rather than to come up with a union and actually challenge them and come up with maybe their own. We've had these times, you know, Venus and Serena 10 years ago, they were going to do their own circuit as well and blah, 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 and challenge the, ATA, the WTA and so on. I think in terms of crisis, which we've had, I think it's normal that there is some unrest. There's a bit of turmoil. And certain signals, you know, sending it out like, uh, uh, Djokovic and, 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 and his group has done might be good to, to stir things up a little bit but I do not see the benefit the long term benefit of having this sort of union trying to go against the ATP you know I've, I've been on the WTA board and there's player representatives and there's tournament representatives and it's a very complex cocktail at any given time to make this work so during this pandemic year, with all the financial implications on tournaments, I understand that the players are upset, that, the price, that there's prize money cuts. They should be happy that there's still a job for them. Yeah, they, they should. should be happy that they can still travel under safe circumstances. Yeah. No, I, agree. I, do, I agree. I don't think during this pandemic year where there are so many implications, not just health issues, but financial economical uh, implications, that it was the time to look at uh, challenging each other more. Uh, and I think there is enough common ground between WTA and ATP to actually come up with a joint product that will be stronger than having more separate unions and separate circuits uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, I, I, I sincerely hope that empathy for all the other stakeholders in tennis, whether this is sponsors, tournament venues, players, obviously, uh, but also the ATP and the WTA and the ITF as a governing body, that all those stakeholders find enough empathy towards each other to let common sense prevail and actually get through this difficult period because it's not over yet. Uh, we might no, it's we, not. We might get control of, the, of certain health issues but the economical implications of organizing tournaments have come up with this price money. I understand that this is very upsetting that they get less price money. Having said that, they're still in a job. They make good money, uh, not in all scales of the, of the ranking, but that is something that, you know, I, I think that's another issue eh, regardless of the pandemic. But now is not the time uh, to, to uh, stand down. I think it's time to... Uh, to actually find a unified approach. I think this is a, a really good moment in, uh, in history to actually use the pandemic to come out of this crisis together. 
Yeah, and I think, but I think just, I guess, to, to throw a slightly different slant on that, and I go in between these thought processes when I listen to people. When something is monopolized, as, as the ATP and WTA currently are, the negotiating power isn't with the, the players. Now, I guess my, my thing of someone who cares about the whole ecosystem of tennis, I think there has to be a way of more people making money from playing this sport in terms of what goes into it. So if the pot can be bigger... Now, if, if a separate tour or if different ways do this to, to provide more negotiating power, to, to provide a situation where more money is in, in, the, in the economy of tennis, then what it then does is it has a monumental effect for me and, me and you in our current positions. You know, tennis academies become a place, all of a sudden someone 250 in the world can afford to have a coach and pay for the coach to be there. They can afford to pay for correct equipment and strings and, you know, all of these, the whole ecosystem of tennis, there's a massive knock-on effect. So I guess my motivation, and I'm listening to this, not that I have the impact or a say, but why I'm so interested in this is who can deliver that. Not who can deliver more money to the top, top guys, but who can deliver uh, an economy in our world, our tennis world, where let's be honest, someone 250, 270, 300 in the world, no. they deserve no. to be making a living from this sport. Yes. You know, they absolutely deserve to be making a living from this sport and a little bit more to, to, to do things properly. And then the call, the coaches out there that are traveling for free with players, they deserve their time away from their family. They deserve to be making a living from the sport, doing that and providing that and you know all of these things now again i don't want to get away from the fact that the pandemic is the pandemic i also don't get want to get away from your haircut so i'm gonna i know that you have to go but you have to do our quick fire round but you have to be super quick are you ready uh yes i'm ready serve serve or return serve technique or skill skill forehand or backhand Backhand. Favourite Grand Slam? Australia. Snow or sun? Sun. Clay or hard? Clay. Should there be an injury timeout or not? Yes. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? No toilet break. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Kim Kleisters. Well, I know just the man who can set that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be texting you later after your haircut to see if you can help me out. Carl, I've loved it. Could have sat here and spoken tennis with you for many an hour. Hopefully I'll get a chance over the next couple of years in Spain at a tournament in Tenerife. I hope that our paths cross lots more because I, I love chatting to you. Okay, thanks for having me, Dan, and uh, good luck with uh, all your other podcasts and uh, the Soto Tennis Academy. Thanks a lot, Carl. Take care. Another great conversation with another great person in, in the sport of tennis. And as ever, I have actually the star of the show. We're getting all this feedback on how you are bringing a certain class to the show. Oh, really? I bring the class? <laughs> this is this is this is what we're hearing. I feel as if maybe it's becoming the Vicky show. I'm gonna have to be careful whether this continues this this chat after. 
Well, you know, I am the only trained journalist in the family, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, and it's also obviously people being discriminatory towards the Geordie accent. I think as well. it might be the accent. <laughs> they, they don't. They don't represent a classiness to it. But <laughs> <A> classiness. <laughs> but no, it is. It's it's great to have you as ever to to unpack. So, Carl Mai's uh, the the professor of tennis. It seems. Yeah, I took so much from that. I mean, what a career he's had to be in that environment back in the 90s with all those amazing Belgian players, Melise, Henning, Kleisters, Rockus. I like what he said about how he's come to terms with, um, it wasn't him. It, it was a very special period to be a part of. Although I'm sure he did have an amazing impact as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, obviously a lot of those guys were similar age to me. You know, Kim was a couple of years younger. Uh, but Xavier Melis, who we've had on the podcast on many occasions, was my age. Olivia Rockus, and, I, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure federations can create superstars, but I do think that they can create consistency of players that that are in the top 200 in the world, going on to being top 100 players, and and I think. Probably the most impressive thing for me in that sort of era and five, ten years after with Belgium was the consistency of players that came out, you know, rather than the superstars. So if we take Switzerland, let's all copy to try and create Roger Federer and Stan Varinka. I'm, I'm not sure that there is a way of copying that, but there is a system to be able to create a conveyor belt like they have in France, like they have in Spain like they have in certain countries around the world. The Russian girls seem to have that. And it was nice to hear him speak about that. But without any shadow of a doubt, Carl's had a great career. He's had a very methodical career. You know, when I think of Carl and I think of coaches from Belgium, it is done in that very methodical way. And and one of the things I really liked is even though he's had that career, he's now spending his time in Tenerife and he's picking up a new culture, tennis culture, and he's still very open to learning even at his age and stage of his coaching career. He, he talked about Spain quite a lot, didn't he, and how the culture does play a part in um, developing players and also the tournament structure. We've talked about it as well several times, how there's just so many competitions, tournaments, so many opportunities for our players at the academy to compete. And Spain is seeing the rewards for that. With Look at the number of players they've got currently on the tour and look at the players coming through. Yeah, I loved I loved it when he said, as we know well, the manana manana yeah. mentality. And sometimes that is looked at negatively. And, I, and I, I like his spin on that. I hadn't heard that spin before. but But certainly... The fact that he, he talked so clearly there about each player has their own pace to go. And I think on my previous point when we're talking around systems and actually with Carl, the Belgian system was taken. Let's create that in the UK. And that's, you know, people are guilty of that globally of trying to create a system that works. Whereas actually in reality, get the right infrastructure. We keep banging about it get the right competition structure structure, and then the cream will rise to the top. And, and, and 
everyone has their own journey, their own way of doing it. And I think Carl, if you'd spoken to him five years ago, he would have been a one that would have had certain numerics that you have to hit at certain ages that may, maybe brings way too much stress and complication for players and for parents involved. Whereas what he's now seeing in Spain is work hard, compete if you miss a day of training, no big deal. If you lose a match, no big deal. There's always the next day and certain people will come through at certain ages when they are ready. And I think that would be a real key message that I would love everyone to take from the podcast. I really liked his philosophy when he said he likes to make people comfortable feeling uncomfortable because for me that's not just useful tennis that's useful in life I mean how many of us have not done something not been somewhere because it would take them out of their comfort zone I think it's such an important um, quality to have and, and and something that needs to be practiced yeah I mean we would use the terminology at the academy of the ability to tolerate you know and you hear Rafael Nadal you hear all of the Spanish players talking about the word suffer the ability to suffer, which is basically the same as tolerating the the reality of life, the reality of sport, the reality of tennis is the best players are the ones that are able to tolerate discomfort, whether that's a physical discomfort, whether that is a mental discomfort, an emotional discomfort, yet still be able to then commit and and put their game out there on the court. You know, and anybody that thinks that you're going to turn up and you're going to win tennis matches and tennis tournaments and not have to go through that pain and not have to tolerate that pain and that discomfort has got another thing coming. You know, so that has to be trained. I would completely agree with his philosophy. You know, the one I like to use on that is that your competition level is your level and you are competing 5% of the time and you're training 95% of the time. So as as an industry, how do we make that 95% of training time more competition-like? And exactly what Carl's saying there, we have to make it an uncomfortable situation for players so that they get used to being comfortable in that situation. So spot on, Carl, I'd, be, I'd happily have you over at the academy because the philosophies are, are very similar. And I'm sure we've only just scratched the surface of all the gems we could be learning from him. Um, and as ever, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode with Carl. Um, you can do that by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can contact us on our email, info at sototennis.com, or you can message us on our Instagram at ctc.podcast. We've had quite a few messages, like you said earlier, Dan, in the last few weeks, including one here from Alistair Stiven, which says, Hi, Dan, I listen to all of your episodes and I take so much from all of them. Please keep producing them because I am learning so much. Um, thank you, Alistair. I agree. I think that there's not been one episode so far where I haven't taken something from. Yeah, no, it's lovely to hear that. And thanks, Alistair. And thank you to you all that are, that are reaching out. I can assure you, we are learning and taking as much from these podcasts as as all of you as well. And, and the big thanks truly does go to the guests that come on the show. They give up their time for free. They come in and they they share their knowledge from 25, 30, 40 years in the sport at the very highest level and all the way through. So that's where the thanks deserves to go. And it's our pleasure to continue bringing them to you. I do have a little 
question and please let me know because we have the French Open coming up in a couple of weeks. Would you guys like me to get the panel together again to preview and review the French Open? Please do let us know on social media at ctc.podcast on Instagram. And you can also find us then on Soto Tennis on Twitter and also on Facebook. We will then do our best to bring our expert panel together to go through the French Open. Next week, we have Iga Svontek's data analyst, Mike James, and we really do dig into the data side of the game, which if you've listened to all of the podcasts, you will know that is a passionate side for us to look into. If you are new to the podcast, thank you and welcome. Please enjoy making your way through the other 114 podcasts. You'll see lots of amazing names in there. And I can assure you they are all well worth a listen. And I'm unbelievably excited for the conversation that I'm having later this week. And that is the old coach of Pete Sampras, Tim Henman and Roger Federer. If you've coached those three... You seriously know the game. And if you know the sport, you'll know who that is. If not, I'm sure that you will find out by Googling that. And he will be coming to us in the next couple of weeks. We'll continue to bring all of these amazing people to you. Thank you for the support. Have a brilliant week wherever you are. Until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>